Last week we considered the problem of uh, authority in the church and where Christians should look for guidance to determine orthodoxy and and uh, and right practice. And this week we want to look at our at the relationship between the church and the world. Christians have always wrestled with um, what their relationship with the world should be like. In one sense. Um, We believe that the world is a sinful and messy, corruptible place that has uh, destroyed what God has has set up and and is uh, and will ultimately be judged. And so, in that sense, we need to be separate from the world as as separate as as possible. But on the other hand, we have to acknowledge that the world is a good thing. That something that God created and that. God is displaying His glory through the world, through His creation, and that we need to live faithfully in it as, like we talked about last week with Augustine, as having uh, citizenship both in the world and in heaven at the same time. That we, we many, many times we say that, that heaven is our home and this world we're just passing through and, and, um, and our citizenship is in heaven, which is true, but at the same time, we are residents of the earth and we have a citizenship here on the earth. And so, there is this uh, struggle that Augustine talked about in his book called The City of God. Um, so, let me uh, have a word of prayer and um, thank you for coming this morning. Glad you could be here. Looking forward to studying how God has worked through the uh, ages past to, uh, to accomplish His purpose through the church. Father, thank you for uh, your grace and history. Thankful for how we can see your hand at work in it. And although there are times of uh, relative opposition toward you, uh, we do see glimmers of hope uh, in people who have committed themselves to you. Uh, sometimes they didn't understand how to balance things correctly and uh, and went overboard with regard to their commitment to you and and went beyond where you wanted them to go. But even from those cases, we can learn from them. And then in other cases, there were people who were well-balanced and and who considered the things of you as most important. And so we're looking forward to learning about them as well and seeing how we can, can uh, grow as a result of seeing their lives in the pages of history. Give us wisdom now, we pray, to be able to interpret these things in a way that would be honoring to you and and to the advancement of this church in this time period, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today we're going to look at 650 years of church history, and um, and we're going to consider at least two different ways that Christians try to relate to the world. One way is they try to withdraw from it. The idea of isolation. This get away from from all the wickedness of the world. The other way is by trying to conquer it. And uh, we'll talk about the pros and cons of both ways of trying to to deal with the world. But before we begin, I want to talk about a word on time and history. Today we're going to consider a very large chunk of time, 650 years, in about 45 minutes. And to give a sense of perspective, there, that's almost three times the length of the national history of the United States. And we're going to cover that in this short period of time. It's ten times the average lifespan of an American. It's 8.5 million times longer than a typical sermon. 
So here, here at this church. So uh, we're taking a long look at, or a short look at a long period of time, a long, a large chunk of history. But we have to understand that this is a survey class. We're, we're covering a broad um, time period, and this should not surprise us that we often cover larger chunks of history that are rather what we could say uneventful. Um, this happens in the scriptures as well. For example, the first 11 chapters of Genesis cover more time than the entire from the rest of the Bible combined, okay, from Genesis 12 through Revelation. So, so we should not be surprised that sometimes what writers do, like Moses did with the first 11 chapters, is they cover broad ranges of history over a short period of time, um, give give very little time to that much much uh, of a time period. Uh, historians talk about the the years between the end of the Old Testament, the last writing of the Old Testament, Malachi, to John the Baptist, New Testament. There's 400 years right there, and and there's not a whole lot that's talked about. And yet, we see the same thing in the life of Christ, that He was around for 33 years, but we don't have a lot of His first 30 years of life and ministry. We have a, a great amount of times focused on his last three years, particularly his last week of life. Uh, several chapters Mark gives, I think uh, four or five chapters he gives to the very last week of, of Christ's ministry. And so what we need to understand is although I say these, this time, the 650 years, can be uneventful, um, there's, God is still working sovereignly through this time period. And... Um, and uh, and so while there are they're rather quiet, there are times of stability, growth, and preparation for what lies ahead. And we have to remember that the Lord's timetable is much different from ours. That with the Lord, Second Peter three eight says, uh, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. Well, this period we're going to cover today is sometimes called the Dark Ages the Dark Ages, which go from about 8,500 to eighty one thousand, And it's because of, it's a rather, uh, rather a relative lack of, of intellectual and cultural development. And, and it also marks the time of the beginning of the fall of the Roman Empire. The, the, um, the Romans were defeated. Their uh, Rome itself was suffered its major defeat in AD 410, so at the beginning of this period, and it finally was uh, eliminated over most of the earth in 476. However, there were still some um, remnants of Roman rule around the world, and so what happened, particularly during that 5th century, was there was a, a series of invasions on Roman rule um, and it lasted over a hundred years before we come to about 500, where the western half of the Roman Empire was uh, was was completely eliminated. And uh, as we saw last week, many Christians had come to identify Rome with the kingdom of God. And as a result, when Rome fell, remember Jerome and and others. They were appalled. They were thinking, how could this possibly be? The kingdom that God brought to this earth has now been destroyed. And Augustine uh, saw these things in balance. 
and and um, identified this world, this earthly kingdom that we have now is nothing compared to the final glory that we will see in the, the coming kingdom. And he quoted from Hebrews 11.10, which says that Abraham was looking for the city which has foundations whose architect and builder is God. Jerome had been so upset by the fall of the Roman Empire that he said when he found out about it, his tongue stuck to the roof of his mouth and sobs choked his his speech. So this was a huge, huge deal for for many people who thought that this was God's kingdom coming to earth in in the form of, of Roman rule. Well, as the Western Empire uh, started to become more eliminated, the Eastern Empire um, was uh, was being attacked, and by specifically uh, Justinian, who took the throne. Uh, well, he was actually guarding the Roman Empire. Excuse me. Justinian took the throne in 527, and during his reign, he halted the the advance of the barbarians who were trying to attack and um, and take over much of the East. And as a result, the Eastern Empire and the Christian faith soon became threatened by um, by uh, by some other, I guess, problem groups that arose in the North and the West. And uh, you probably are familiar with some of this history. And in AD 570, a man by the name of Muhammad was born, and he claimed to receive visions from the angel Gabriel, which came to be recorded in the book known as Quran, the Quran. And the Quran is about two thirds the size of our New Testament, so not very. Not a very large book, but um, in in uh, in Mecca, Muhammad gathered a band of followers, but they failed to convert the rest of the city to their um, to their re- new religion, and this began a retreat and uh, and a pilgrimage that Islamic history calls the Hijra. This uh, battered group attack, uh, attracted more and more Arab disciples along the way, so that. Uh, when Muhammad returned victorious in Mecca in AD 630, when he was uh, 60 years old, his new religion soon began to gain some uh, staggering growth. And uh, from the start, Islam expended, expended its time and expanded through the sword, as, as you know. And uh, they, they tried to get people to come to their way of thinking by force. Uh, Muhammad died in AD 632 at the age of 62, just two years after he had defeated, uh, he had won at, at Mecca. And um, as a result, many times when people die, it actually makes their legacy even greater. When people think back on, I mean, just think about Michael Jackson dying, how much of a hit he's been since he's died. Um, same thing, sort of thing happens with Muhammad. They uh, they started to adopt his way of thinking all the more, and saw him in many ways as their martyr. Um, by a hundred years after Muhammad's death, Islam had conquered Egypt and the rest of North Af- Africa, and had even uh, made its way into southern France and parts of Spain. And um, and so, what did this mean for Christianity? the fact that Islam had started to take hold in much of the world. Well, it certainly revealed some weaknesses in Christianity, particularly in North Africa, that Christianity hadn't 
really taken very good root there in northern Africa. And as a result, it was this false religion was able to come in and and, uh, raise other people up to follow it. And so what the Christians recognized was that they weren't as strong as they thought they were around the world or, or their their hold on on the people of the world was not as strong. Secondly, Islam deepened the division between the East and the West. This will come become clear when we get to the end in 1054 where you have the Great Schism. Um, the East and the West became more and more separate, not just geographically, uh, were they separate? But but as far as communication and theology, and um, and as a result, uh, third the third result of Islam's taking uh, taking force is that they forced the Western Church to shift to shift its fo- focus to uh, Northern Europe, where Christianity had just only begun to take root. So Christianity basically backed away from where all the persecution was. Remember, these Islamic uh, people were 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 making people come to their religion by force, and so the Christians didn't want to have anything to do with it. So that forced them to go to another area, which became Northern Europe. And that actually becomes important for our country because, as you know, that's uh, where Christianity really took root was in was in uh, England and in Ireland and some of these other uh, Northern European com- countries. And as a result, it was able to spread. Uh, over the seas to our country. All right. Any uh, any questions so far on the the fall of the Roman Empire and, and its effect on the religions of the world? Vicky. Um, they well, you remember with um, Constantine who came around in eighty three hundred. They went from a time of first three centuries of the church where, where all persecution, people dying like crazy for the sake of Christ. Constantine comes in, who's the ruler of, of the Roman Empire at that time, and he says, no more persecution on the church. And so, because they had a wrong view of the end times, uh, because they didn't recognize that Christ would come before the kingdom, that He would actually, when I say come, I should say, that he actually raptures the saints up before the time of tribulation. So what they tried to do is they tried to look at the persecution, the time of persecution during those 300 years as the time of, we could call it, a tribulation period. And as a result, the kingdom of God is now coming and it's coming now on the earth. And um, and as a result, they, they, they were wrongly, they, they wrongly understood it and they were, they were sorely displeased or or uh, shocked when the Roman Empire actually did fall. So, yeah, Bill. Are you familiar with the writers back uh, in early church history by the name of Gibbon? Gibbon? No. Uh, I understand what's an apostate, and he gives five reasons for the fall of the Roman Empire. Okay. Huh. Yeah, no. I remember all of them, but sports, uh, the social system we have, of uh-huh. your people that don't want to work, sports. Uh, I, I don't know. And if anybody thinks that I'm down on people that need help, that's not what I'm saying. But I 
Do you know how to spell his name? Okay. Okay. Yeah, I haven't I haven't heard of that, but I would be interested to to see what he has to say. If I think of it, I'll bring it tonight, I guess. Okay. Well, one of the ways for the church to relate to the world, or Christians, we could say, to re- relate to the world, is for them to retreat or to become isolated. And that was one of the answers that um, that led to early monasticism. And that's just a big word for saying the idea that monks, that, that people should be monks. They should be isolated and, and focus more time on, on the Scriptures and God and be away from people and the world. Monks began to appear in the 4th century. Um, they were frustrated by all the corruption that came into the church. Remember, as Constantine started to give relative acceptance to the churches, there was this Roman rule that was inside of the church and they also started to manipulate some things in order that people could people would start to be turned away from the truth rather than towards it. And as a result, these monks started to see these problems or these people who would become monks, they started to see these problems and they wanted to pull away from the corruption that was in the world. And so they thought the best thing to do was to desert that sort of lifestyle and pursue a pure life of spiritual meditation and worship. Sounds really good, doesn't it? One of the more well-known uh, or zealous of these these early monks was a man by the name Simeon uh, the Stilitus or Stilitz. I'm not sure exactly how to say that. But he spent uh, several months of his early life in uh I was going to say monastery, but it really didn't develop into a monastery. As a monk, he spent several months buried to his neck underground, uh, and this was a way for him to basically pull away from from the world. Uh, bizarre. Uh, that lasted for a little while, and supposedly, I don't know how people would bring food. To, why would people be so foolish to to accommodate that kind of nonsense? But but after that, he felt like the next thing that he needed to do was to, to live up on a pole. Perhaps you've heard of that story on a 60-foot pole. In fact, he did that for some, uh, let me see, I think it's 30 years, the last 30 years of his life on top of this great pillar. Food would be, uh, he'd pull food up to himself through a rope. He'd also at the same time get notes from people who wanted to ask deep spiritual questions and uh, certainly must have been a, an exciting time for him, especially when the storms would come. I don't know what possesses some of these people to do these things, but there are others who also thought that they needed to they need to expose themselves to uh, difficult circumstances to prove their spirituality in a sense. And so some would uh, would walk around naked in a swamp where there are lots of mosquitoes, as you can imagine, for months and years try to prove that they were something special to God. And um, so um, another one of these early monks was a man by the name of Benedict of Nursia, and he's probably the most influential. He wrote a, a writing that's still influential to this day. He's got a lasting leg- legacy. It's called The Rule of St. Benedict. And what it became was a handbook for monks, how they were to 
to live in this uh, isolated type um, mindset or lifestyle. He was born in Rome or near Rome in 480, and by the age of 20, he had grown completely disgusted with the world. And perhaps you've been there yourselves where you have this thought, this world is so corrupt, I need to get away from it. And, um, and so as a result, this man retreated to live in a cave and many people found out about this and followed him there. And that's really where you get these, these monastic communities, these community of monks where they all are living out in isolation, but out in isolation together, we could say. And so in his uh, writing, that this handbook on what monks should be like, he also talked about why they should do what they do. And he was concerned with, with creating a lasting standard that would preserve monasteries over the long haul. And uh, their main focus, which we can commend them for, is to, was to obey God and keep their focus on God. Remember, that's the main reason they pulled away from the world. And uh, this, uh, one of the, several of the things that it prescribes, this writing that he put, put down this handbook was a life of poverty, chastity, obedience, forbidding the ownership of private property, um, and setting out a rigorous schedule of prayer, worship, Bible study, and work. They would gather eight times daily for prayer, seven times during the day and one time at midnight. And here is an excerpt from his writing, his handbook on how monks should sleep. All the monks shall sleep in separate beds. If possible, they should all sleep in one room. However, if there are too many for this, they will be grouped in tens or twenties, a senior in charge of each group. Let a candle burn throughout the night. They will sleep in their robes, belted, but with no knives, so they will prevent the injury and sleep. The monks then will always be prepared to rise at the signal and hurry to the divine office but they must make haste with gravity and modesty. When they arise for the divine office, they ought encourage each other, for the sleepy make many excuses. So, some wisdom there. Don't sleep with knives. That's good. Uh, sleep in your robes so that you're ready to, to come prepared before the Lord and, uh, and make sure that, that you encourage each other early in the morning because sleepy people make lots of excuses. Um, perhaps that's why some of these pictures of early monks are are uh, they look so disheveled because they are sleeping in their robes and not caring about personal hygiene probably as much. Uh, certainly, you can't when you're living under living with your body underground. That's disgusting. Um, any, in many ways, um, Benedict tried to set out rules for moderation. He, he was strict in what he tried to show. Uh, the monk life uh, to be, but he also avoided the extreme, the extreme situations like Simeon, who lived on a pole or underground, and um, and in, so so now they're starting to build up communities that are a little bit more we could say sane, and that's the way that the 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 life of monks would be for the next five centuries, and through Benedict and his writing called the Rule. There were countless men and women who pursued serious Christian life in a sacrificial way. And that's why monasteries started to pop up all over and they served in many ways as anchors for 
how God was going to, to use them in the future, or at least their understanding of the Scripture to, um, to help bolster the next, um, the next time period in history. So how should we think about this pulling back from the world? Okay, It's a good thing to want to stay away from the corruption of the world. How should we consider the monasticism uh, then and now? Because there still are people who are uh, monks. To begin, we should we should think of the positive things that they have they have brought to this time period. First, it focused on people uh, and their relationship with Christ. Okay, instead of trying to to allow a person to to, to get in, involved in the temptations of this world, it it set out to to be spiritually disciplined, and so we can commend them for their their focus on Christ. Um, and their desire for, for Christians to grow in their faith. Second positive thing is that monks always played a vital role in evangelism. During these several centuries, there were missionary monks who would try to spread the gospel into northern Europe, and they often endured uh, tremendous hardship. For example, there's a monk named Patrick who first brought Christianity to Ireland in 432. And he spent the next 30 years ministering there, establishing monasteries and, and emphasizing missions. So we do have um, the gospel trying to be spread, albeit um, apart from a, I would say, God-ordained way of spreading the Scriptures. But that, is, that was one of their goals, was to spread the gospel. The third uh, benefit to this, these early monks has to do with their doctrine. They, they tried hard to preserve orthodoxy. One of the things that they worked on was a rigorous catechism where everybody within the monastery would, would learn the basics of theology and, and have to be able to recite them. And they would also spend a lot of time copying the Scriptures down for themselves and for their group of people and for others. Remember, this is 1,000 years before the printing press. So, so obviously there are some things that we can commend them for, but but there are some problems too, as you can uh, as you can gather. The most pressing concern was their perspective on salvation. The, because they saw that they needed to have such a disciplined, painstaking life, what that led to was people believing in a salvation by works. And sadly, that's where many of the monks ended up. That that if we do this sort of thing, this will be the basis by which God accepts us. This is not in gratitude to God necessarily. This is not because of or an evidence of what God has already done. Rather, this is um, this is the way that we are accepted before God. And everybody who's not living like us is not a Christian. Secondly. Um, Just because you pull yourself away from the corruption in the world doesn't mean you pull yourself away from temptation. Okay? Just because you're living with other people who are concerned with truth and concerned with, um, with growing in, in Christ doesn't mean you, you walk away from temptation. And so within monasteries, certainly you've heard stories of, uh, from history how people had fallen into deep temptations and had actually denied the faith. And uh, it's no different now, I would think, in monasteries today. The Bible cautions us repeatedly not to make the mistake of Demas in Second 
Timothy 4.10, who deserted Paul because he loved this present world. We are called to be salt and light and, and we are to withdraw from the world in the sense that we're not supposed to be uh, a part of it. We're supposed to be in it, but not of it. But, but we also are called to, to love our neighbors, to, to, um, to share the gospel, to advance God's work in the church. And so, um, sometimes what happens in cases like this is that we put too much focus on we could call spiritual things that we neglect our present responsibilities and as a result become a poor witness. And that's what happened in these monasteries. And so while they tried to escape the world, many monks fell prey to the world and really were just um, children of the devil. Um, and so this led to serious corruption within monasteries and it obviously affected their witness for Christ. So the first way that Christian early Christians tried to um, view their relationship with the world or react to their relationship with the world was to pull away from it. Any questions on monks or monasteries? Mark or comments? Yeah, that's a good thought. Um, I would say that the radical ones, the ones that really do stay away from all the, you know, they try to stay away from all the technology, they they could probably be in danger of that. Um, but the, a lot of the Amish that I know, well, I don't really know any personally, but a lot of the that I've seen recently have actually, they seem to adopt a lot of the, the thing, or at least use a lot of the same things that we use. I mean, they have cell phones. We saw some in Cincinnati when we were at McDonald's, a family of at least 14 or 15. Yeah. Well, you're... Yeah. 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 Well, the danger in that sort of thinking, obviously, is to think that the, the evil comes from using those types of things. And um um probably not. Because these people are actually all monks in this form are, are celibate. They're mostly you you have a monastery full of men that are just all trying to you know, just like you've seen on movies or pictures, it's the the brown robes with um, you know, just spending time in the scriptures all day. I don't think Amish people would. You know, um, and this is this might shock some people, but before Patricia and I were saved, obviously we were Catholic, and we were actually married by a Benedict, a monk of the Benedictine order of the Catholic Church. Oh, really? Yeah, and there is a so it shocked them. There is a monastery up in Oxford, Michigan, on Germany Road. Oh, yeah. They go to church, or they have service. Yeah. Services in the area and stuff, and drive cars. Right. Yeah. So there's modern 
Absolutely. Yep. And with every religion, there's all different. There's a huge range of of different uh, mindsets. So you have some that are super strict and won't touch anything with regard to the world, and will always be isolated, won't see people from the outside. Then you have others who are more, we could say, liberal when it comes to monk lifestyle. Uh-huh. Franciscan, Jesuit. Okay, and so like there was a church that I went to a lot as a young boy in northwest Detroit where there was a scholastic called Mhm. That is a Benedictine church. Hmm. But the monastery is all about the monastery. But the priests that go there are from that Right. So that's why I just wanted to find out Amish was yeah, I suppose, a form of Yeah, I wouldn't call them a form of, of monasticism, but they, they do have they they do live by a lot of the same principles, don't they? Um but I wouldn't say that they're a form just because of the, the structure of both people groups. Extreme yeah. Right. As if we can get closer to God without a community of believers, which scriptures don't teach. Jared, do you have something? Well, it's not occurring with uh, the use of technology um, that they may perceive, you know, that corruption comes from it. Maybe corruption doesn't necessarily come from the use of the technology, but neither can you guarantee sanctification based on the use of more technology. So, so you can become just as sanctified and dedicated. Yeah. But um, yeah, I was going to ask what your thought is difference between um, admonishing against isolation, but then encouraging against separation, which we have, um, you know, scripture supporting us against sinning by the world. Right. The degree of separation, and maybe groups of monasticism during history as a symptom of believers uh, fearful of. Yeah. Right. Right. Um. Turn to John 17 with me, and I'll try to answer that. Because there is there is a lot of truth to us wanting to be separate from the world and that's why we, we did commend the monks for that. John chapter 17. This is uh, the prayer that Jesus offers on behalf of Himself and His disciples. Look at verse 13 with me. Jesus says to His Father, But now I come to you and these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. 
And then notice verse 15. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves also might be sanctified in truth. Okay, so Jesus makes a distinction between being a citizen of the world and being separate from the world. And what he's calling for is not that we... And Paul says the same thing. He says, you know, if you ever want to remove yourself from sinners then you'd have to go out of this world. You'd have to live on the moon or in Mars or something. Um, so we're never going to be completely separate from the world in the sense that the monks were trying to attain. What Jesus prayed for was not that we were taken out of the world, but that we were protected from the power of Satan, that we were protected from from what he was going to do. That's why he says in verse 15, uh, to keep them from the evil one, to, to pull them away from him. And, um, and so there is a sense in which, yes, we should be separated from the world, but there is also a sense in which we live in this sin-cursed world and we live among sin-cursed people. And so I would actually argue against a, I would argue against a, an isolated society which can tend to be the way that we live in our Christian subculture, which is we have all of our Christian um, we have all of our Christian networks, and those are the only people that we we go to when we have any issues with our car or with our teeth or with our health. We we stay inside those Christian networks. That way, we don't have to deal with unbelievers. But certainly, Christ would never um, condone that sort of mindset, and I don't think that's what you're condoning either, because. He certainly ate with publicans and sinners. He, he had relationships with unbelievers. Uh, he often taught the Pharisees, even though they were uh, in many ways apostate. Some of it was uh, certainly to reveal their, their sin, but certainly with the publicans and sinners, we have to say that he was developing relationships there. And, uh, and we certainly should as well. And that, How else can the glory of Christ be seen by unbelievers if we never have any relationships with unbelievers. Vicki? Yeah, you look at his example. He's on his throne in heaven and he actually comes to the world and basically um, gives himself to all the ridicule and and the corruption that there is within this incursed world. Right. Right, and that's why I think the local church is so important because we can't ever get away from fully the world and its temptations. So we need a place where we can be uh, both held accountable and where we can be our, our understanding, our thinking is being checked by 
by a community of people who are growing as well. So we can't we can't ever fully get away from the world anyway. So that doesn't mean okay, we just give up. We we're just gonna go to bars and parties and things with them. Um, that's not what I'm suggesting. But I am suggesting that the way that we check ourselves, the way that we um, the way that we guard ourselves is by being a part of a, a church that is growing. Jared. Romans 12, 2, don't be conformed to this world, so, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And that happens as we expose ourselves to scriptures. Uh, let me get Bill. He's been waiting for a while. Uh, I was just looking at what Apostle Paul wrote. He answered every question that's come up in chapter 5 about the monks who are throwing themselves. Chapter 5 of? Of Yep. Every question is answered, in my opinion. Right. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not all, at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous or swindlers or idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. So, verse 11 says, But actually I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he's an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or reviler, drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what I have... What have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within your church, within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. So, yeah, that's uh, exactly right. It's a great passage to uh, consider when we look at these things because the danger is we can think we got to get rid of, we got to get away from all immoral people. But that's why Paul says you have to live on the moon or Mars in order to get away from them. So what I'm saying is this immoral person within your midst who is unrepentant, that's the person you can't even eat with such a one, verse 11. The, one of the things that the church does, verse 12, is they judge those who are within the church. That's one of the, the you know, we always hear the, the most, probably the most quoted verse now in our day is Matthew 7, 1. Don't judge lest you be judged, right? So you can't judge anybody. But yet, Paul says right here that, that we are to judge those within the church. We need to make sure that, that we as a church are conforming to what is an acceptable way of life for believers to live. And that's part of the beauty of the local church. We help, we help each other out, help, help uh, cultivate growth in each other's life spiritually.
Absolutely. I would. Yeah, he stayed with. Um, yeah, I think he stayed in. I'm trying to think of his. Was it Arabia? For several months or or years. Yeah. Yeah, obviously he had a lot of book knowledge about the scriptures, but he needed to refocus it on what was true. And he, he probably did, in a way, need to. Uh, go to boot camp spiritually and uh, I would argue the same thing as well we don't just take our kids when they first come to Christ throw them out in the world and you know to the dogs and go I hope it works out for you hope the spirit of God is is powerful within you I mean I think that's very unwise and so we have to we have to help uh, build their uh, insulation as Jared said I think it's a good word to the conformity of the world. We help to do that by teaching them discernment, teaching them to be wise children. I would say the same thing about a young Christian. We that's why Paul's yeah, Paul says to Timothy, you know, a pastor, I think deacons too, cannot be a new convert. You know, because they they still have the possibility of being swayed by the world and they need to be bolstered up in their understanding and in their in their faith. Paul had a BSD Yep. Okay. I figured you were going to tell us what that acronym meant. I always love TLAs. Three-letter acronyms. They're very helpful for um, getting by in life. All right. Well, we uh, we're not able to look at the next level of of uh, I guess uh, addressing the world. How do Christians address the world? We'll have to take a look at that next week. So um, hang on to your your hand out here and and we'll reuse it again next week. Thank you for your attention and for the good conversation. I um, think it's always valuable to to um, to address questions and, and comments in that way. Let's pray. Father, it is difficult to live in this world and sometimes the um, the the temptation that we have is to, to pull away and just be uh, all alone with you and and uh, and work on our spiritual lives that way and yet the problem with that sort of mindset as we've seen today is that even when we are all alone our wicked hearts are still with us and our hearts are self-deceptive and often self-destructive and so we are prone to wander spiritually and we recognize that you have designed for us to live within a community of believers who are also working to purge out uh, sin and unbelief. And so we pray that you'd help us to be a church that is marked by that. We pray that each of us would be uh, working out our own salvation with fear and trembling, for you are the one who works in us, both the will and to do of your good pleasure. Thank you for this time and for this discussion. Help us now in the time to follow to recognize how you protect and preserve those who persevere. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.